Let's open our Bibles. We're going to be looking in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. An incredible passage on Pentecost. And, you know, really not supposed to ever, as a preacher, preach somebody else's sermon, but I'm going to preach Peter's sermon. It's an inspired one, so uh, I feel like it's good ground to, to go through. But it's on the resurrection. Um, I want to also greet the live streamers this morning for Resurrection Sunday. So glad for anybody that's streaming in and glad for those of you who've been able to come back and be back part of uh, the assembled group here. So glad to sort of journey with you and all of that. Um, Open up Acts chapter 2 this morning. This is uh, seven proofs on the resurrection. Seven proofs on the resurrection. I wrote in uh, my blog this week uh, these seven proofs that I just found from Peter's sermon. I had never... Preached Peter's sermon for Resurrection uh, Sunday sermon. I've never probably preached this. I did first hour, but I've never preached this before behind a pulpit. But I found that Peter was confronting the multitudes and the masses that had assembled at Pentecost. And what he decided to do was preach the resurrection to drive people to a decision of either following Christ, repenting, or staying in their sins. And thus the church was born, and here we are. So I thought the Lord probably laid it on my heart, my heart to share this with you uh, this morning because I shared it in a devotional on Tuesday to some of the staff and just thought, you know, I'm going in this direction. And I think Acts chapter 2 is a great place to be. It's an exciting moment because in the history of redemptive history, this is when the church began. These are the last days and they, these last days begin with the beginning of the church where the Spirit of God came in a pronounced way and gave birth to a new program. Things in the Old Covenant system, in the Old Testament, you'll read about how God worked through the nation of Israel and created a, a, a God government, a theocratic government. And that all was a foreshadowing to lead into the Messiah, Him coming, Jesus came. And with Christ's death sacrifice for our sins, buried, rising again, then he had promised that when he ascended, the Holy Spirit would come down. And the Holy Spirit came down. He came down, and we read about this in Acts 2. And all of this is uh, Peter's opportunity to sort of, sort of reel in the moment, you know, and, and stand on the platform, step up to the plate, and preach about Christ being raised. And this is the proving ground. This is the pivot point for believing. You either believe Jesus rose or you do not. There's no halfway belief. It's not enough just to notionally or mentally affirm that Jesus rose or watch a pageant play or watch a TV series and say, that feels good that Jesus rose and that makes Christianity what it is. That's not enough. That's not saving, illumined, certain, sure, strong, life-changing, life-directing faith. Peter is saying nothing less than that will work. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing the line in the sand. You either are in or you're out. You either believe or you don't. There's a binary moment, even in our culture right now, where more and more the culture is driving us to choose. Are we believers in the resurrection? Where we live in the fellowship of sufferings, we're willing to risk it all for Christ And we live in the power of Christ's resurrection. This is the dividing line that is built and drawn here by Peter. You know, I got to say, there in church history, 
Um, even in the last 50 years, there have been, there's been this category, this middle ground category where people claim to be Christians, but they're claiming a middle of the road category, not just saved or unsaved, but the carnal Christian category. It came out of a seminary um, and teaching and movement in the 80s, and it was the carnal Christian. You know, it's the idea that you could, you could easily, it's easy believism. You believed, and then you just live like you didn't, nothing changed. You harbor sin in your life that's unconfessed. You're not working on it. You don't even desire to work on your sin. You're just casual about it. And you go in and out of church and you claim to be a Christian. And you claim fire insurance from an experience you had where you walked an aisle or you professed faith. But nothing really changed. And the tell on you is that you're harboring, you're harboring sin. You're, you're hiding some secret sin that you're unwilling to let go of. And they, and so seminaries and churches begin to label this category as you're the carnal Christian. You're a backslider. Now, am I saying you can't backslide? No, there, there are backsliding moments. There are seasons of struggle. There are sins that you have to work through. There are things that you're born, um, drawn towards that you have to kill. But Romans 6 says that you will have the desire to kill your sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you, meaning that you have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sin, and you're a fighter now, and you're wanting and willing and doing the fighting of the Christian life, which is sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life as you fight against your sin. That's Christianity. It's not perfectionism, but it is a direction and a resolve to say, I follow Christ, I believe he rose, he's risen, his power is in my life. And I'm a fighter. I'm not someone who is a both-and Christian. You have the casual Christian, the, the millennial Christian, even like the homosexuality movement, homosexual Christian. None of those things, once you add a label to Christian, it cancels really the true meaning of Christian. Do you realize that? I mean, we have to fight sin, but you don't want to cancel what it means to be a Christian, which is little Christ. You know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm following Christ no matter at what cost. I am a Christian. I stand for Christ. That's Christianity. That's true Christianity. Middle of the road Christianity is not Christianity at all. We are given to Christ. And this is the message that Peter is driving toward at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, what is that? Acts chapter 2 documents a uh, festival within Judaism, which is one of the celebration feasts and ceremonies of the Jewish faith, which was Pentecost, which basically means 50th, 50 weeks. Pentecost was 50th or the 50, the feast of weeks. It was 50 days after Passover. Remember Christ, he observed Passover with his disciples and then he died and rose. And for 40 days, it says in the beginning of Acts, he preached the kingdom. Well, right after that time, Jesus ascended and then we have Pentecost. That's working right within the calendar of things and the events unfolding. 50 weeks, feast of weeks, 50 days after Passover. Exodus 34 and Leviticus 23 talks about this. This was a harvest festival where people had brought in the harvest, the Jews had, and then they wanted to bring an offering, like a tithe offering, a first fruits offering of their harvest. And so people would come in, not just around Jerusalem, but the nations surrounding Jerusalem. They would come in uh, because the Jews had been dispersed 
They'd been persecuted, so they were spread out historically now around the Mediterranean. We're going to see this. They're speaking different languages. They're part of different ethnicities. There were proselyte Jews, those who weren't born ethnically Jews, but they had they'd given over to Judaism. So they're in a pilgrim pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, bringing their first fruits offering 50 days after Passover to celebrate and to praise the Lord for the harvest. So this is the setting here that we find ourselves in in Acts 2. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is the 120 who were in the upper room. You have the 11 um, apostles and you have Matthias who's joined um, to take over for Judas um, had apostatized and left. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, a lot of things going on here, but just to say this is a supernatural event. God is getting everybody's attention. Later on, it's going to say 3,000 were saved. So there were a lot of people around at this festival. This was a big platform moment. Somehow, God is, is calling people together to come under the hearing of the word. And he does this with the event of the Holy Spirit coming. The Holy Spirit was resting as like fire over the different heads of the 120 who were in the upper room. You know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. The apostles were there. Other disciples were gathered there, men and women who were up there praying. And and it's showing that each individual believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and yet they're gathered together under the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. It's just like the church. Whereas we're moving from a physical temple where the presence of God is there, seen with the ark presence of God and the sacrificial system, to now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God's Old Covenant, Old Testament program, where he's working through the nation of Israel to, to gather people as a witness there, locating God there, to the church that is the invisible advancement of the kingdom of God that's growing with the universal church that then is displayed through the nations where located Local churches are in different nations with different people groups gathering together. And that's why you have the mention of tongues here. Tongues are glossolalia. It's known languages. Anything that we can know about tongues should begin with Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We would reflect back to Acts 2 as a commentary source to say this is the historical record of, of God both judging Israel for rejecting Messiah. The remnant didn't, but Israel as a nation rejected Messiah. And so the kingdom program is now turning to the Gentiles, turning to the nations, turning to people coming from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. So you have language where the gospels being preached to one another in an incredible way. There's a supernatural wind-like dynamic that's taking place. It's supernatural wind, supernatural fire, not literal fire, just like not a literal dove descended on on Jesus, but something like a dove, something like fire, something like wind is happening, and it's very dynamic. Look at verse 5. And there, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galatians? And how is is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, 
Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya or Libya, um, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Now, those are believers. They're, they're hearing it. They're understanding it. They're, they're recognizing the miracle power of, of, you know, you couldn't speak in that language before, but we can hear it and we understand it. And you're saying, you're speaking in a way that I can understand you. But then those who were onlookers, began to mock, and they weren't engaged in this at all. They were missing the point of the edifying moment, and they're mocking it. They're saying, verse 13, they are filled with new wine. They're, they're drinking. They're drinking. But you have Peter, who steps up to the plate and sees this as a moment to bring the word of God. It says, verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lit, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. He's going to preach. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He's using some humor there, but he's basically saying, look, you guys are getting it all wrong. You're missing the point of the moment. Your hearts need to be opened up. And then he harmonizes what's going on with the prophecy of Joel. Um, Joel chapter 2 speaks of the, the last days, as you see in verse 17. The last days mean um, God's program with the church. The beginning of the church begins the last days program. So you have it sort of bookend with dynamic experiences that are happening, that are introducing the church, dynamic experiences and healing and ministry and kingdom dynamic that will happen with with um, the apostles in the early church establishing it. Then you have the period we're in, and then at the end, when the day of the Lord happens, there'll be some more amazing uh, moments and experiences then. That's what Joel is talking about here. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. There'll be prophecies and visions and dreams. Verse 18, you have... He'll pour out, um, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, moon and blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 21 is really the, the launching point for Peter. He wants... To bring a dividing line, remember he's preaching proofs of the resurrection, why? To draw a line in the sand and say, believe in the resurrection. Which way are you going to go? If you call upon the name of the Lord, you're going to be saved. So let's look at these seven proofs of the resurrection. He's got everybody's attention here. And this is the pivot point for whether it's all real or it's not real at all. Seven proofs of the resurrection that it's true. Number one, Jesus' resurrection was planned and foreknown. Acts 2, and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst and you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he begins by talking to Israelites. That's basically his crowd. And he wants to relate to them by speaking to the humanity of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? This is Jesus. If you see verse 23, this Jesus. He wants to say, I want you to relate to this man, Jesus. Jesus in the English vernacular would be the name Joshua. 
So as much as we would use the name Josh or Joshua, they would have used the name Jesus. You know, Jesus now is sort of a special name, right, for us because of who he is. It sort of marks it for him alone in our minds probably as English-speaking people. But for them, Peter would have been saying, you remember this Jesus. You remember him. He was born in Bethlehem, but he's Jesus of Nazareth. He was a kid in Nazareth. Nazareth. He was, you know, 11, 12, 13 in Nazareth. He, that's where he grew up. It was predicted that he would grow up there, but that's where he grew up. And you know that area. And then later, when he was 30, he went down to the, by the Sea of Galilee. He was performing miracles. There were signs and wonders that could only be explained by God's power. He was raising people from the dead. He was giving sight to the blind, hearing to the death. Deaf. He was, he was bringing people to a wholeness again. And he did this tirelessly and he taught the word of God. And he, it's amazing. That was this Jesus, somebody who was a Jew, just like you and me in submission to the power of the spirit. But he also wants them to think in terms as Jews, not just in terms of Jesus also being a Jew, but he wants them to resonate with the fact that they knew the word of God and this was predicted and fulfilled. It says, delivered, this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He did all that, verse 22, as you yourselves know. And then it says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What was the definite plan? The plan was God's plan all along. He's saying, yeah, Jesus is fully human, and he was given the Holy Spirit's power to do these amazing things. But all of this was happening according to God's definite and perfect plan as Messiah, as Messiah. It was all foreknown. Um, Psalm 22, the Messianic Psalm, talks of this, speaks of Jesus being mocked in verse 7. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. This was all foreshadowing and precise prediction of Christ dying on the cross. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Um, Verse 16 says, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Uh, Two, you know. A thousand years before there was Roman crucifixion, there's the, the, the clear mentioning of Christ being pierced through for transgressions. Amazing. Isaiah, even, even 500 years before that, said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we were healed. The stripes referencing precisely um, the scourging that Jesus underwent when he was on the cross. Zechariah twelve ten later would say that they look on me, speaking for Christ, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him and weep for him. Peter's weaving together the definite plan of God that was the plan all along, the sovereignty of God here, and saying that, This was all part of the plan. The word of God predicted it precisely. It it shouldn't surprise you to understand that that Jesus is raised because it was all part of the plan. It's the sovereignty of God. Do you see that, that word foreknowledge there? 
What does that mean? Foreknowledge does not mean that God looks down through the corridors of time through a crystal ball and says, there's a bunch of potentials that could happen. And whatever happens ultimately happens by chance or circumstances. If that's the case, then what's in control, God or circumstances? The circumstances are. Um, Foreknowledge doesn't mean crystal ball looking into the future and trying to figure it out. That's not what God is doing. Foreknowledge means that he knew you before. He knew in this case that Jesus was going to die on the cross before it happened, before the foundation of the world. Um, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is the lamb slain in God's mind before the foundation of the world. Before it even happened, this was all part of the definite plan, foreknowledge. You know, you were foreknown before you were born. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 speak of God's foreknowledge of you. He knew you before. He didn't just know you were going to become a Christian and so he chose you. That's what some people believe. He knew you intimately. He knit you together in your mother's womb with intricate detail and knowledge. To be foreknown means that the creator who created you always knew you and he knew when you were going to believe. And in the same regard, Jesus was foreknown to be the one who would be the savior who would die on the cross. This foreknowledge, this is the confidence we have that it's provable that Jesus was risen from death because it was all part of the plan. You know what else was part of the plan? Not that Jesus would die, but that people would actually crucify him and kill him. You see that in verse 23? There's God's sovereignty and then human responsibility. He was delivered by foreknowledge and by a plan. And then it says, you crucified, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The word killed there is used also of Herod when he killed every baby in Bethlehem that was two and under, two and younger. The word killed there means murder. So you say, I thought the Romans were the ones that murdered Jesus or crucified Jesus. Yes, but that trial and all of that dynamic was incited by the Jews. Do you remember that? What do we, Pontius Pilate, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. What they're saying is murder him. Put him out of our minds, right? When you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when God is convicting you and working on you, perhaps you're sitting there right now wondering, am I going to choose all of Christ and truly believe the resurrection or am I going to hang on to my sin? Do you realize that what you may be tempted to do is try to snuff out that conviction and put Jesus away, put him as far out of your mind as possible? That's what the Jews were doing. And so Peter is pulling no punches. He's saying, you murdered Jesus. You did this. You did this. And you need to think about it. You need to deal with this. The Romans did it too. They were lawless. They were not law keeping. They had an illegitimate trial against Jesus. But you Jews killed him by the hands of lawless men, by the hands of the Romans. Verse 24, God raised him up. This Jesus, verse 23, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not, was not possible for him to be held by it. This leads us to our second proof. The first proof is that it was all part of God's plan. That's proof number one. Proof number two is that it was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus because Jesus is God. Do you realize that? The grave couldn't hold Jesus. Why? Because it's impossible to keep God dead. You say, first of all, who raised Jesus from the dead? 
All right, class, who, who did? Well, the Bible says God raised Jesus from the dead. What does that mean? Well, God is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, God the Father did. God the Father did. And Ephesians chapter 1 says God the Father who's Paul, is who Paul is talking about. And then verse 20 says that he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. That's God the Father. And then Romans eight eleven says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then John 10, Jesus gets into this conversation. He says, no one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to do what? Take it up again. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus is God. Now, Jesus being God and Jesus dying brings up what could seem like a total contradiction, right? There's the law of non-contradiction that basically says two contradictory propositions cannot be, both be true at the same time. If A is B and, and A is not B, that would be mutually exclusive. So how do, we, how do we put this together? How do we reconcile that Jesus is God and that Jesus died? Well, you have to reconcile it with what's called the hypostatic union or that Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time, simultaneously. You hold those two things together. Why? Because that's what the Bible says Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal son. Second member of the Trinity has always been, and I believe always in that subordinate role, equal with God, the Father in essence, but subordinate in his role as the eternal Son. When this Son came from heaven to earth and was born of a virgin, he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit and was born, he lost nothing of his deity and added all of humanity. Remaining fully God, he added, you see a plus sign, full humanity at the same time. In Jesus' humanity, he's fully human and he fully died. In his deity, God cannot die. So how do we put this together? How do we put this together? Ultimately, it's a mystery, but you just look at the text. When Jesus was on the cross, he he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? That's the separation between the Father and the Son. It's the the darkest moment of Christ's life, I believe, where sin separated the inner Trinitarian fellowship between the Father and Son in that moment. At the same time, after that was done, where Jesus was absorbing the full wrath and fury of all the eternities of hell onto himself on the cross, your sin and my sin nailed on the cross. In that moment, there was a separation between the son and the father in that moment. It's an amazing moment. It's why we're saved. It's redemption accomplished and applied. It's why Jesus could say also after that to tell us die, it is finished. He accomplished something on your behalf at that point. There was true separation, but there had to also be physical death. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there's blood, there's no remission of sin. True sacrifice, true atonement, true bloodletting that wasn't symbolic, but it, was, it wasn't mere symbolism, but it was actual sacrifice for your sin. Blood had, something had to die for justice to be served. So all of that's happening, and that's why Jesus at the cross 
physically died, but he gave. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, 46. Six, he said that with a loud voice and breathed his last. So there was separation on the cross, but then there was unity when Jesus died. These are all filling in the picture. Why did it have to be this way? Fully God and fully man at the death of Christ. Well, because when you send and I send, we send against an eternal God. And so an eternal payment had to be made on our behalf for us to be able to go to heaven. You know, when you die, you're going to pay for your sins. Your, your sins are being paid for one of two ways, but both ways are eternal. Think about that. When you die, your sins are going to be paid one of two ways, and both payments are eternal because your sin is against an eternal God. So you're either going to hell, paying for your sins in debtors, hell, prison forever and ever because it was against eternal God, or in this life, you will repent of your sins, believe on Jesus Christ, who as fully God and fully man could die, but is also eternal, making him the perfect, sufficient payment and atonement for your sin that pays an eternal debt that you could never pay so that you could go free into heaven forever and all of eternity. You say, how does this work? Well, if you sin against your brother or sister at home or your spouse or whomever, that's a human offense. And you can fix that with human restitution perhaps, right? If you sinned against somebody on a higher level like your boss, you might have a greater consequence, like you might lose your job or something. If you sinned against you know, the governor or the president of the United States, higher penalties are required because it's a higher office that you're sinning against. What about sinning against eternal, holy, perfect God, your creator? There needed to be an eternal um, payment that had to be made on your behalf. And the only way that eternal payment could be made on your behalf is for Jesus to be fully God, which he is, and take on full humanity so he could die and make atonement for your sin. But because Jesus is God, I say all that to say he could not stay dead. There's no way, no way. It is, the word here, impossible, not possible, verse 24, for him to be held by it. Number three, point three. So it was part of God's foreordained plan, for definite plan. Number two, it's not possible. That was another proof because he's God. Number three, it was predicted by David 1,000 years before that Jesus would rise from death. Now, this is verses uh, 25 and 26 and following. I just, I, I'd read this earlier. It's Psalm 16. This is David's testimony, but it's also David's prophecy. And at certain points, I just want to open the Psalms up in this way. It's interesting. God takes over David's voice and starts speaking for himself. And the reason he does so is because it's showing us how Jesus was thinking when he was going to the cross. It's amazing. You have uh, verse 25 here, and it's taken from Psalm 16. David says concerning himself, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. This is Jesus speaking for himself. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is sometimes translated hell, but means death. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus was not going to see corruption in the grave. You've made known to me the paths of life. 
You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What, what is Peter saying in verse 29? He's saying, first of all, Jesus was glad to go and die. Why? Because he wasn't going to stay dead. He knew the end of the story. Now, we, we learned on Friday that at Gethsemane, Jesus was terrified to absorb God's punishment um, on our behalf. He was terrified of that. He was looking into the mouth of a furnace and he, he kind of saw that and he began to shake. He began to sweat drops of blood. God, if there's any way I can not have to do this, not have to drink the cup of wrath, let it pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He went through all of that. But at the same time, Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Here we have a window into the mind of Christ. He's saying, I'm rejoicing. I'm willing to go. I see the path of life. I'm not going to stay dead. This is not a forever moment. And so I'm going to go. That's what we sang earlier. Christ gives us the power to take the stinger out of death. Some of you have had to face death in a new way, even through this season. Perhaps you've lost a loved one in a nursing home or a loved one to sickness, or perhaps you've been diagnosed with something where you're, you're terrified, but as a Christian, you can see beyond death to reunion in heaven with believers. That's the prediction that was given a thousand years before Jesus died. These are prophetic heart cries that David was illumined to. He was able to see it and know it. Number four, number four. God promised Jesus would assume David's throne, meaning Jesus could not stay dead. There's a lot of interplay here between David and Jesus. That's what Peter's doing. He's saying, remember Jesus, remember American name, Joshua, remember him, but he also had signs and wonders and amazing things happening. This was all part of the definite and foreknowledge of God plan. And, and he died, but he couldn't stay dead. It wasn't possible because he's God. And now... We're seeing prophecies that are harmonized here where, where Jesus was talking through David that he couldn't stay dead. Death could not hold him, right? And so then in verse 29, I just want to go back to that verse. You see that Peter is saying that David, though he is this patriarch and, and was this hero for the Jews, brothers, I say I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died. You're putting him up on a pedestal and he was buried. But guess what? His tomb is with us to this day. David's buried right over there. Jesus, he died, was buried, and he rose. David's bones are still in that grave. That's what he's saying. So just make a clear comparison. David, when he died, he stayed dead. Jesus rose back to life here on earth. It's amazing. And this was all predicted. And, and David knew that Jesus would rise because he knew that there would be someone who would take the Davidic throne. He was just a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Acts chapter 2, 30 and 31. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath, a promise to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw, this is David, by the power of the Spirit, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He was all talking about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
David's promise was rock solid because it was God's promise. He foresaw this. Number five, the early church was made up of eyewitnesses who testified Jesus rose from death. You know, just by gathering, we're present day witnesses. Do you realize that? The word witness is martyria, which um, was adopted in the early church, the word martyr for those who gave their life for the faith. More and more, we live in a dangerous culture that if we speak out for Christ, speak up for Christ, name the name of Christ, we could lose things. We could lose property. We could lose advantages. We could lose securities. We could lose even our lives. We could lose our freedoms. But we stand for Christ. Why? Because we're witnesses. Now, we're not physical eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection, but we're spiritual witnesses of Christ's resurrection. We believe because we've seen through the eyes of faith, these people actually saw Jesus pre-cross and then raised. Verse 32, it says, who were these? Uh, It says that we all are witnesses. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. We're witnesses. Now, who are the witnesses? Who are the witnesses? Well, Jesus was alive after he rose for 40 days and he preached the kingdom of God, Acts 1-3. It says he presented himself alive to them after his his suffering by many proofs, Acts 1-3, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Who, Who were they that saw Jesus? People that saw Jesus before and after the cross and then after he was raised. Well, you have a lot here. You have Mary Magdalene. Think of her. She saw him at the tomb. She saw him before. Saw him at the tomb. You have the women on the road who saw Jesus when he was going to um, re-coincide with the disciples. You have the two on the road of Emmaus. You have Peter. You have the upper room accounts where 10 of the 11 are there. Thomas was absent. And then eight days later, Thomas is present. You have the seven disciples who saw Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. You have 500 disciples at Galilee on a mountainside who I believe that harmonizes with Matthew 28 where Jesus went to the multitudes and said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. You have 500 witnesses there. You have James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one that mocked Jesus saying, oh, go to the Feast of Booze with his brothers. They were all snarky and snide and, and they didn't believe in Jesus. They said, oh, Jesus, you're just such a perfectionist. You think you got it all together, right? And, and they didn't believe. But then later, after the resurrection, James, this half-brother of Jesus, is a redemption story, believing in Jesus. You have the apostles who saw Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father. And then you have Paul, who's not mentioned here, but it kind of alludes to it. Paul in Acts chapter 9 um, believes. It's amazing. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Nathan um, read that earlier. But again, verses 5 to 11, he appeared to Cephas, the 12, the 500, those who are alive, those who've seen Jesus and have fallen asleep or who had died, James, the apostles, And then one untimely born, which is Saul talking of himself. We're all witnesses. Matthias, who was a witness, he had Matthias for him to be voted in to be an apostle, had to be a witness. He had to see Jesus. So all of these witnesses. Now we come to point six. And this is my most important point of the morning. We're 40 minutes into the sermon. You got to hear this. This is key. I just want you to hear this. Even, I mean, out of all seven points and proofs, this is really the one proof that matters. This is the one proof that is the difference between you going to heaven or not. That's why this matters. This is whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. The number one proof 
of the resurrection is that the Holy Spirit has come into your heart and tells you it's true. That's it. I'm just boiling it down to like a first grade level. Uh, The Holy Spirit, that's no disrespect. I'm just trying to put it on the bottom shelf. The Holy Spirit comes into a believer's life when they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and come to life spiritually. You hear the word, you hear it up here, your whole life, Sunday school, VBS, Awana, you hear the word of God, you hear Bible stories. And then one day, hopefully early on in your life, perhaps later on, the Holy Spirit opens it up and you go, no, I'm certain that this is true. And you don't even know what happened to you. It's called being born again. You don't remember the first time you were born physically, right? So why should we expect that we would know exactly the precise moment when we're born again? God opens our hearts. Jesus said that to Nicodemus, who was like basically the Pope at that point, the religious leader of all of the Jews. And he said in John 3, you must be born again. And how do you not understand this? Well, you're not going to understand this stuff with certainty unless God opens your heart and you're born again. The lights come on. God flips a switch. Now, where do I get that from? Well, this is uh, Acts 2, verse 33 and 36. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus went up and the Holy Spirit came down. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Holy Spirit's poured out so that you see and you hear for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's that's a reference to Psalm 110. What is Peter saying there? He's saying, look, David, when he wrote a thousand years ago, Psalm 110 and talked about the father and the Lord sitting at the right hand of the father. How did he know about Jesus if he didn't go up there and see it himself? Well, the Holy Spirit came down and told him that that's what's going on. The Holy Spirit gave him David's sightedness to understand something that's New Testament. Something before it's all really spelled out, David knew about the Messiah. He knew about Jesus, even not by name. The Holy Spirit shows us things. David didn't go up there. The Holy Spirit came down. It says verse um, verse 36 It says, until I make your enemies a footstool, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. You hear that phrase, know for certain. Let all of you Jews know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How do you know that Jesus rose from death? The Holy Spirit tells you he rose from death. As you hear about it and read about it in scripture, you have seeing and hearing and the Holy Spirit is saying, yes, it's true. Yes and amen. It's true and it's true and it's true and it's true. And it changes your life. When the Holy Spirit is poured out in your life, you know that Jesus rose from death. This is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33 again. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Ephesians 1 says it's through the eyes of faith. This is the Christian's Damascus Road experience. This is what it's all about where like Saul on the road is knocked off. He's blind, but he sees. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 12 years ago when I came here to preach, that was the first sermon series that I gave. It was 2 Corinthians chapter 4. My heart was for the church to see Jesus Christ and to feel that because your life changes when you see him through the eyes of faith. 
It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's when you know with irrefutable um, knowledge that it's true. The two on the road to Emmaus, they knew about Jesus. They had heard that, that something was supposed to happen. Something was going on. They were confused about Jesus. Jesus began to explain in Luke 24 all of the scripture, all of the law and the prophets concerning himself. It all made sense in Jesus. And they're sitting there eating food with Jesus, talking, listening to the word of God. And then Jesus vanishes and they're like, whoa, where'd you go? And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us over what Jesus was saying? That's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. That's where the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a son of God, that it's true. That's where you're willing to give your life for Christ, to die for the faith, to live for Jesus. Whatever he calls for, whatever he asks, we know it's true. Yes, there's evidences that demand a verdict. I I mean no disrespect to evidence. I mean no disrespect to philosophical arguments, logical arguments, scientific arguments, archaeological arguments. I don't care per se, what Josephus says or what the different war Philo says. I mean, those things are all good at a level and I can understand those things, historical arguments, but it's Christ in scripture. It's the Holy Spirit that's poured out and you go, I am bearing witness with this, that this is true. And it's life-changing, life-directing, life-guiding. It, it, it determines who my friends are, uh, who I, whom I love, what I love. It's all what the Holy Spirit does it makes every promise believable 100%. I oversold 0.6 to, to now undersell 0.7, but 0.7 is meaningful as well. 0.7 is just that people over and over again repent and are baptized when they hear this message. It just happens again and again, over and over. This is a proof of the resurrection. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, They were cut to the heart. This is what Peter was driving towards. Cut. It's turn or burn moment. You're in or out. They're cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we do? You know, this kind of what do we do question is not a work salvation question. It's a response question. Something's happened inside. What do I do about it? I'm bleeding (laughs) spiritually. My sins are apparent. Well, true repentance manifests itself in this way. Number one, it's public. You don't hide it. You're willing to share it. It's not secret faith. It's bold, saving faith. I'm willing to be baptized. I'm willing to be dunked and immersed and to testify that I'm a believer. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, what? You will be saved. It's a public profession. It's not optional. It's every one of you needs to do this. It's not exclusive. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. You can see this in the text. It's given and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's offered to everyone. It's offered to everyone. And we see this again in... The text, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, that sovereign grace, drawing and calling people to faith. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves. In other words, run to Christ. This is a response to what he's already done in our hearts. Save yourself for this crooked, from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized. They went into the water. And how many? 3,000 people. It says in three, that day about 3,000 souls were added. It's amazing. These are proofs that confront and assault rebellion. Rebellion. Our world is rebellious. Come under the saving care of the saving refuge of Christ. Believe that Jesus has, ra- has been raised genuinely, not just notionally, but convictionally with certainty by the Holy Spirit. Be public about your faith and call people to this same repentance because we all want to get into the saving ark and be saved from the destruction that is to come, right? We love the Lord together.